Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Voice of Reason podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Abby Nissenbaum, who is currently studying for an MBA, but had previously been working on a doctorate in social psychology when... When working on a research paper, she had some ethical qualms about the ways in which the data was being handled, brought those qualms to her advisor, and then was kind of pushed out of that program. We get into that story in more detail within this podcast episode, and we also talk about ethics in research and the amazingness of gaming, and a couple other issues. Abby is a real treat to speak with and to listen to, and so I will get right out of the way and introduce you to Abby Nissenbaum. How's it going? It's going. <laughs> There's a lot it, going on, I think, yeah. just, like in the world in general. Well, yeah, in the world in general, but in your yeah. world in particular, right? Yeah, so in my world, the semester has just started up. Um, I'm an MBA candidate in Tennessee. Um, I, I never candidate. Know, I like, yeah. What do you mean by that? What does that mean in um, the world of academia? I don't think it means much in the world of academia. It just means that I'm getting my MBA. <laughs> just oh, okay. a fancy way of saying it. Yeah. Yeah. Are you teaching as well? I guess that's not necessarily a master's. No, I'm not teaching yet. I've actually, so prior to last semester, I had never even taken like any college level course or even any sort of course in general in business. Um, so I'm coming in totally new to this field. <laughs> but you have had academic adventures prior. What's your level of, uh, I guess, because you, you were doing something related to science or something related to statistics. What was your study before you started doing business? Yes. Yeah, so I was a PhD student in social psychology, and I actually earned my en route master's. So I do have a master's degree in social psychology. Why are you doing business now? Was uh, social sciences not up to snuff? No, that wasn't it. Um, I'm just really interested in research in general. And after um, my whole debacle with my PhD, which obviously we'll be going into, um, I actually fell into a research position at a startup video game company. And um, I found out that a lot of video game companies really like hiring MBAs to do their research as opposed to PhDs even. So I figured if I wanted to continue in that field, which I loved, um, maybe I could get an MBA <laughs> and keep going that way. What's uh, what's the relationship between uh, video games and research? What what are you researching? Like social psychology, the way that people uh, economies arise, uh, inner yeah, inner developmental. Yeah, there are a bunch of different routes you can go in terms of researching at the video game industry level. So you can look at like player demographics, you can do um, just general research for specific games. So if you have an educational gaming company, for example. Um, I don't know if I just said, for example, twice, I sometimes do that. But <laughs> if you have like an educational gaming company and you want to see 
how your game is going to affect children's interpersonal skills or something like that. Um, you could actually study those things in the same way that an academic psychologist would just in a different setting. Yeah. The thing about games is that I think the popular conception of gaming or video games is that it's just a frivolous pastime. But it's actually, if I may advance the argument, it's us replicating human interaction in a virtual space and totally. using a lot of tools to basically build our build the matrix. We're, we're using gaming to build the matrix. And what gaming does is, uh, I don't want to say hijack in the negative sense, but it replicates all these different mechanisms that we take for granted or that we're really unaware yeah. of into... Uh, this realm of lights and sounds uh, in a way. Yeah, that's such an eloquent, beautiful way of describing video <laughs> games. Um, and even Facebook now is um, giving out grants to do VR research. So instead of just bringing people into the lab and having them go through this contrived situation, you might actually be able to place them in a certain situation, which is still contrived, but you can put them a little bit more into whatever thing you're studying um, through VR. Yeah. And it's only going to get more and more complex. And as it becomes more and more complex, it's going to become more and more believable. Just just like the way in which um, this is probably a bad example, but Laura Croft, uh, the video game <laughs> avatar, just as she started as this very janky kind of 3D model and is becoming successively more and more lifelike, so are all the systems inside of the video game space or it, it, i don't even think it's video game is the correct way of thinking about it anymore uh, but you're on the forefront of researching that and why does that what is gaming what, what captures your imagination and your interest about it um so while i was again i keep like referencing my phd debacle which we'll go through um <laughs> Maybe we should do that right <laughs> I'm, I'm interested should. in gaming. <laughs> yeah. Um, so while I was sort of like sitting alone in my apartment, totally like far away from family or friends. Um, so like just for a while, I was literally alone in my apartment, like waiting for the appeal process to go through. Um, but I turned to video games and they were a way to get my mind off of things. Um, there are communities online that, you know, you could talk about video games with. Um and I just found it really, it was a way to get out of the situation that I was living in, even if just for a few hours each day. But it wasn't only, maybe the escapism was the the entry point of the launching point, yeah. but what did you find over there that, that really engaged you so much that you want to make that a part of your career? Um, I saw just like an avenue, I guess, for research, even at the... Um, like development stage, so at the story stage, um, because when you look at the credits for a video game, it's not just you have a writer and like some voice actors, um, you have a whole research and development team that actually helps you create the story. Um, I played this game called Life is Strange where they touched on a lot of like LGBTQ themes. Um, they touched on even, um, what is it called? The trolley problem. Um, so basically choosing between one person's death or a lot of person or a lot of people's death. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. It touched on a lot of psychological concepts that fit perfectly in with what I was doing before and what I loved. Yeah, I haven't played the uh, prequel or the sequel to Life is Strange. I did play the too. 
first one, I was really surprised because even though it, um, not even though, it took a lot of uh, important issues, but it it was very subtle. It exploited them in very subtle ways. It wasn't preachy. It, it, when whenever discussing through art any sort of morality uh, issue. It's really easy to go ham, ham-fisted and the writers can say, this is what I want you to believe or this is what I think is right. But really mm-hmm. exposing people <laughs> to the turmoil of figuring out what is right or wrong or, or expressing your own values in the template of a video game was very well exploited and expressed through Life is Strange. Yeah. The prequel is also so amazing. It's just it good? it's such an amazing piece of art. Um, I love, I'd love that whole franchise. (laughs) I'll have to get into that. I, uh, with, uh, there was a video game, it's still out there, but it came out a year ago called, uh, Death Stranding. Uh, Mm -hmm. and basically it's an Amazon prime delivery service simulator where you just kind of carry packages, but while you're doing it, you're carrying this baby the whole time. And it really, I, I got very heavily emotionally uh, invested into that. It was the first video yeah. game to make me like cry like a movie. I was just bawling. It was pretty amazing. And I think the forefront of video games is not at all tapped. And again, I think it comes down to people don't really understand what video gaming actually is uh, in a way. So that's really cool that you're on the forefront of that. What is uh, about research? Why research? Um. And what is research? I guess we need to define that because I don't even know what you mean by that. Yeah. So I guess research is looking at ways in which you can quantify behavior, um, at least from a psychological perspective. Um, I'm not quite sure what it is that first got me so excited about research because I went into college actually um, looking to get my BFA in musical theater or vocal performance. Um, so I come from a music background and I thought that was, that was it for me. That was what I wanted to do. Um, but I took a social psychology course in my first semester of undergrad at Penn State. And I just fell in love with all of these different theories. Like we learned about Taj Fell's social identity theory. So people derive their self-esteem from the groups that they're a part of. And as I was looking around me at Penn State, you know, like a lot of frats, a lot of um, Greek culture there, um, I was thinking like, oh, maybe like the boys around me are acting this way as part of pack mentality or way to gain self-esteem within their groups by, you know, like catcalling girls on the street or things like that. Um, And when I found out that you could actually study those things and you could get paid for doing that, and that's what social psychology was, I actually ended up pivoting to that field. So it's a mixture of curiosity and looking behind the evident uh, behavior into what's actually causing or incentivizing different behaviors. Totally. Yeah. So it's trying to like describe, quantify, um, yeah, describe and quantify human behavior, I guess. What are some of the skills that you had to, I, I guess, uh, develop in order to do this research well? What, what does it require of the participant or the purveyor of research? It requires a lot of connecting unrelated things in your mind. So you have to be able to go back and look at all types of different historical research, um, you know, like archival research about like human behavior, um, 
about, you have to know about statistics. Uh, you have to see what has been studied psychologically in this field, you know, all throughout the history of social psychology. And then you put all of those different components together as a way to figure out the mechanisms behind certain behaviors and be able to crunch the numbers and study those things empirically. And uh, I guess this can be exploited in positive and negative ways, right? Sure I mean, there's, can. there's an ethics. What are some of the ethical uh, principles for developing and then using this research? That, that might be a really broad question, but it might lay the groundwork for your debacle. Totally. Um, of course, there are like the pillars of, um, of ethical behavior. I can't think of all the pillars now, but some of them are- um, probably a lot. <laughs> <laughs> there, there actually are only a few because they're so broad, but it's like beneficence, um, respect for persons, justice, um, and autonomy, I believe. Hmm. Um, so before researchers can actually go in and do research, you have to take something called um, the city training usually. So it's this training that teaches you about unethical research in the past and how you can sort of prevent doing that um, with your, your research and your participants. Mm -hmm. And what are they again? Uh, beneficence, autonomy of the subject, uh, justice, which is an interesting term because it's kind of that that term is bifurcated uh, or that, that term is hotly contested, I, I might say, and in, in what that actually means. Do you, could you uh, just define like what do you mean by justice in this context of research? Try, I think um, I think part of this is that like the benefits of research have to outweigh the risks of research. Um, huh. So like thinking of um, some of the shock experiments in social psychology, um, you know, like when you would have an experimenter go in and say, you, you're going to shock someone. Um, who did that? Milgram? Was that Milgram's? I think it is. It was some mad that. scientist, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Fun fact, my mom actually worked, like her office was in the lab where that experiment happened. So she's going to be really disappointed oh. for me. <laughs> for you, uh, yeah, not, not remembering. No, not remembering. Oh, for not remembering. It was definitely Milgram. I don't know what I'm thinking. I'm just so nervous that I'm blanking. Uh, don't be. Um, we can uh, put that in the. I, I can. I can blast that across the screen. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> All corrections can happen in post. Good. Uh, it's a, a social safety net of the podcast, the pre-recorded podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Um, so with regards to that example, uh, if I guess we need to explain uh, the shock experiment, but this scientist, who we'll just call Milgram right now, he uh, put people in a situation where they could shock another person based on uh, some sort of uh, projection of intent or punishment for doing something. It's a really yeah. crafty experiment, but it's still pretty shocking. Well, no pun intended. Literally. <laughs> Um, yeah, so it was like participants came in under the guise of um, like a learning experiment. So they had um, an experimenter or a confederate, as we call them, in a white lab coat um, who would meet them at the door and say, yeah, a confederate is like someone who is with the experiment, but they are an actor, essentially. That's another part of why I was so interested in research, because 
I learned about Confederates and I was like, I could use my acting skills for this. Oh yeah. There is like, there's a lot of art in uh, extracting information or, or just gleaning information. Totally. Science is art in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> so the Confederate uh, would come in playing the role of a doctor. Right. Or an experimenter. And they would be, you know, dressed up in a white lab coat and they would say, we're going to do, um, a teaching and learning experiment. So you as, um, you know, you're randomly assigned to the role of teacher. So you're going to have to teach this person who's in another room that you can't see um, about these certain things uh, and have them basically pair it back to you. I forget exactly what the, the teaching aspect of it was. But basically the person in the other room didn't actually exist. It was just a series of recorded messages. And the... Um, the teacher who was the participant of the study would shock the learner each time that they got something wrong. And of course, this was all fake. There were no shocks. There was no learner. It was just a pre-recorded voice in another room. Um, so the experimenter would say, um, you know, each time the learner got something wrong, okay, now you're going to go up to the next shock and the next shock up and the next shock up until the learner in the other room eventually stopped responding. And of course, the whole time they would be crying out in pain. Um, but you would have the Confederate in the lab coat next to you saying, you must continue, the experiment must continue. Um, so now we wouldn't find an experiment like that ethical because you're causing participants um, potentially some harm or you might be traumatizing them. Um, so that's why we have these research ethics in place as not to traumatize or hurt or, um, hmm. you know, deep, depersonify the, the yeah. participants. Yeah. So it's sort of a trade-off between the knowledge that you can gain and the rights of your participants. Yeah. Um, but that's why we also have institutional review boards. So each university or institution where you're researching has a board of different people, I think across different areas of study, um, who look at your experiment beforehand and make sure that nothing is unsavory about what you're doing. Yeah, not necessarily yeah. unsavory, but unethical. Yeah, yeah. And ethics aren't just on the level of what you're experimenting on, but how you treat the research uh, and, and how you go about uh, publishing and going the process of finalizing that research. Absolutely. And that, that probably gets into the ethical quandary that you were put in. Would you call it an ethical quandary? I absolutely would characterize it that way, yes. Do you mind uh, explaining what happened, this debacle? and? Yeah. Um, so in 2017, I was entering my first year as a PhD student at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, I don't, is it okay to say my advisor's name? I don't know if you have legal. It, it's up to you. We can uh, mute it afterwards. Uh, I don't have any legal qualms. And as long as you feel uh, comfortable legally and otherwise, I don't know the ethics of podcasting, but this is a journalistic <laughs> endeavor. I guess I don't have a review yes, board. <laughs> Um, okay, well, if you're comfortable with me having uh, saying it. Um, so I was a doctoral student under uh, Dr. Andrew Stewart, who was a professor of social psychology at Clark University. Um, so I immediately was asked, because um, I wanted to get started with research right away. Um, so I was asked to lead up a manuscript about um, something called heterosexist harassment, which is basically, um, it's for all intents and purposes, homosexual or not homosexual, um, homophobic harassment. 
it's just heterosexes sort of encompasses um hmm. like bisexuals and okay. and all different types of, of okay. non-normative heterosexual behavior um yeah. in in that harassment um so I was asked to be the lead author on the manuscript because my professor knew that I was a lesbian student myself. Um, and it's nice to have sort of that nod to cultural competency in your research. So having someone from that group be a part of the research from the group you're studying. So the study itself had been designed and conducted prior to me becoming a student at Clark University. So basically all that was left to do was to analyze the data that my advisor had and write it up for publication. So as we were analyzing the study my first year as a doctoral student, my advisor told me that um, he was looking for a specific outcome. So he wanted to find that bisexual um, men were the most likely to experience this heterosexist harassment. Um, we were looking at this hypothesis against the hypothesis of a competing research group that said men, no matter what, would be the primary aggressors and victims of harassment. So that theory would expect to find that probably homosexual men and bisexual men would be the most likely to experience harassment as hmm. outgroup men. Um, so when we first ran the results, um, we had asked for our my advisor in the study had asked participants to rate themselves on a scale of one from completely homosexual to five, which is completely heterosexual. And twos were um, mostly homosexual or um, four, you know, twos and fours were mostly heterosexual and mostly uh, homosexual. And then threes were bisexual. So you had the, the poles, the one and five, the twos and fours sort of hmm. matched and then threes. Um, yeah, yeah. So that makes There's sense. that waffling zone and then the bi zone okay. and then the straight and gay zone. Yeah. Totally. Good way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is weird because that's not actually the way that it's characterized on the Kinsey scale. Like that scale is, is from zero to six and it has different varying levels of um, like homosexuality, bisexuality, et cetera. And then it has an asexual zone apart hmm. from the scale. Um so it was weird. I'm not quite sure where he found this rating scale or if he just devised it himself. But anyway, um, when we were doing the analysis, we ran it one way and my advisor didn't find the result he wanted. So instead, he had me drop people who had listed themselves as twos or fours in with either ones and fives or lumped together with threes until he found okay. the result that okay. he wanted. And this... Is this what is called p-hacking? Okay, which is it a is, yes. there's many jokes to be made about that phrase, but <laughs> could totally. you define it? Because this pops up, <laughs> and I know that this is actually a bigger issue than just what you've experienced. This is uh, kind of a correct me if I'm wrong. It's part of the replication crisis, or is the p-hacking something distinct from that? So p-hacking is distinct from okay. the replicability crisis, but p-hacking absolutely has a part to play okay. in the replicability crisis as we know it. And we can sort of discuss okay. both yeah. those things if you want Please. to yeah. define them. Um, but p-hacking, the best way I can think of to describe it is basically splicing and recategorizing data and then running a bunch of analyses until you get the result you want and then selectively reporting only those findings 
totally obscuring anything else that you found. So basically you're running a bunch of stuff, throw everything to the wall, see what sticks, only report the stuff that sticks yeah. and pretend that that was okay. the first thing yeah. that you did, that you had okay. found that. And as along. opposed to the replicability crisis, I have to sound out the uh, consonants every time because I <laughs> <laughs> miss it up. So replicability, I guess the best way to describe it is the extent to which um, findings can generalize over time or throughout okay. different con uh, different contexts. Um, so in this replicability crisis, which has really hit the field of social psychology pretty hard, um, we're finding that a lot of these sort of cornerstone findings and studies don't replicate when we do them again. Um, so there's either like a direct replication where you look at the methods of a study and you repeat everything that they said that they did. So you repeat it just completely. Um, or there are conceptual replications where you try to find the same general finding, but you don't use the exact methods that the original paper used. Okay. Um, and most of these are direct replications. And with regards to the field of social psychology, why do you think that this has particularly hit that hard? Or what is it about social psychology that has allowed this uh, methodology, uh, this corrupt methodology to perpetuate? Is it because it's so complex, because it's always changing, because there's so many factors, so much research, and because the, the psychology of the social psychologist is always uh, imprinting on the data? data? Yeah, that might be part of it. I mean, that's going to be an issue across any scientific field because we all come in, even as scientists, with our own biases um, and preconceived notions, things like that. So science is never like 100% objective. We're not robots. Um, I think there are a bunch of issues why it's hit social psychology really hard. Um, one big issue is that we um, in the past have relied really heavily on college student samples. Um, so okay. it's something that's called like the college sophomore problem, I think, um, where we're recruiting people from psych 101 classes and we're just running our studies on them. And we're saying like, yeah, based on this finding of 50 students from like some Midwestern university, uh, we're going to say that this applies to all human behavior. Um, yeah. And those students were primarily white, straight. Um, Certain economic uh, level, too. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So there are a bunch of things that are, you know, issues with that. Um, so sampling is part of it. Another part of it is just that, like, our culture changes over time. So do these findings necessarily replicate across contexts and across cultures? Probably not. Um so it's good. I mean, even in general, like even if these findings were totally true and, and there wasn't any p-hacking or any any malice going on with the research, which I don't think that there was in the, in the first place, um, it's good to replicate these findings like once every 50 years because your population is changing, culture changes, mm -hmm. people change. Um, yeah. And even some cultures change faster or in different directions than others based on you know, the culture itself. So Yeah, look at our culture in the past five years, how much it's changed. Yeah, very rapidly. Yeah. So you were asked to do this hacking activity. Uh, little mm -hmm. did they know you would go into gaming, which is all about hacking. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> totally. Uh, what, was, uh, what was your response and what, um, what avenues did you have to uh, correct that? 
Yeah, so the summer between my first and second years of my PhD, I went to a program called the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Sciences yearly conference, and I learned what p-hacking was, and I thought, oh, crap, that's like exactly what I did in this study that I'm now writing up for publication. And not only was I writing it up for publication, but I had submitted it um, and presented this data at SPSP, which is the Society for Personality and Social Psychology, the biggest conference in our field. Um, so I presented it there and at Clark University's yearly graduate research conference. Um, so, so your I, reputation's all over this? or Yeah, and I was the... Yeah. Yeah, and I was the first author, um, and I just didn't want to submit something. Even even if a like reviewer came back and said, "Hey, you shouldn't have done this," like I still didn't want my name on it, especially as someone who's part of the community. I didn't want anyone to come back at me and say, "Why are you imposing, um, you know, your views, or or why are you imposing basically a lifestyle on someone who?" may not even identify that way. Like, why are you calling this person who said that they were mostly heterosexual, completely heterosexual? That's not the right thing to do. That's not providing participants with autonomy. Hmm. Um, so I went to my advisor and I had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with him. Um, and I just said, hey, I, you know, I learned about this thing called p-hacking. I think we might've done that. I'm afraid of getting in trouble because Clark University's research misconduct policies specifically listed selective reporting um, and p-hacking kind of as data falsification. So I didn't want to get in trouble <laughs> for having presented this data. Yeah. Um, and in response, my advisor told me that he thought I was intellectually underdeveloped and I just didn't understand the difference between p-hacking and data exploration. Data exploration. This sounds like gaslighting. I know that term is also overused, but so he attacked you personally rather than accept your criticism. Yeah. Um, how do you respond to that? Or how, I mean, what did that make you feel in the moment? Did you have to go along with him? Was there cognitive dissonance for you? Uh, seeing somebody you respect treat you that way? Yeah. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not someone with like the highest self-esteem anyway. So of course oh. I just immediately started crying and I was like, oh, he's right. I am intellectually underdeveloped. Oh um, no. Okay. Yeah. And so I ended up having to leave the meeting because <laughs> I was of course crying because that's what I do. Um, well, it's not what I do all the time, but it's what I do when I'm, I don't know, when someone's mean. Um, and so I went in to my office and I called one of my friends who has a PhD program at another university, uh, PhD student at another university, also in social psychology. And she said that this behavior is beyond the pale, like I should apply out to different programs. Um, and so I did apply out to a few. Okay. And what process did you go through to uh, distance yourself from that report or that research? Um, I just basically said I'm not really comfortable working on this research. Um, okay. I don't want reviewers to come back and think that I did something unethical. And I, I don't want to get in trouble with the school either. Um, so I kind of just stopped working on it and I continued with my own thesis research. Okay. Yeah. But the debacle didn't end with that meeting and you recusing yourself from it. No. Yeah. Um, 
So the day, so like I said, I was working on my thesis um, for that, for my second year. So I had four studies that I self-funded, I designed, um, ran, and that became my thesis. So my master's thesis was accepted. I presented that um, to the university <laughs> and everything was fine with that. Um, but less than 24 hours after I successfully submitted my master's thesis, I got a one-line email from my advisor saying, you're out of the program. I don't want to work with you anymore. I wasn't even really sure what was going on because it happened on like on April 2nd. And my advisor was kind of known for being a little bit immature and for doing, you know, for making like inappropriate jokes sometimes. So I thought okay. that he was just playing an April Fool's Day prank on me. So I emailed the department head and I was like, hey, I just want to clarify, like, I didn't, I'm, didn't do anything wrong. Like, I'm in totally good academic standing is, like, is Andrew just pulling my, like, what's going on? Um, and the department head basically said, no, he's dropping you from the lab. Um, this doesn't mean you're dropped from the program, like he had said in the email. Um, but they said that I had 30 days to find a new advisor, but that's not a policy anywhere in the handbook. A, an advisor can't just drop you from the lab. Okay. So were you able to find another uh, advisor? Yeah. So the social psychology department head um, basically said, like, you know, I, I might be able to help you here. Um, of course, this was after I had posted about my mistreatment on Twitter. Um, I was okay. asking for advice from, you know, like the general psychology community because I didn't know what to do. Um so hmm. I posted about that. Um, and in the meantime, I had asked the social psychology department had Dr. Uh, Johanna Volhart, if she might be able to help me, um, if she could take me into her lab or, you know, what, if, if there was anything that they could do to help, because this was totally unprecedented. There's no policy outlining what to do in the situation in the handbook. Um, so she said that she would have been willing to help me had I not posted about my mistreatment on Twitter and basically asked me like to take everything on Twitter, bad mouthing the program <laughs> off. Okay. Um, and then she would be able to help me. So I took everything off of Twitter. I gave her a little like research proposal thing about what I might want to do as I continued into my dissertation phase, which was the next phase of my program. Um, and in another stroke of luck, my best friend from the program was going to be uh, completing his PhD in July. So at that point, it was already April. Um, and he had already been hired back by the university to be a professor in the psychology department. And he said, like, of course, I'll take you where we were already planning on collaborating. And it wasn't even a question. Okay. Yeah. And things proceeded smoothly from there, then you kind of jumped from one thing to another and everything <laughs> wrapped yeah. up handily. <laughs> Um, things did not proceed smoothly from there. Um, so I, like I said, I gave my research proposal into Dr. Volhart. Um, and a few weeks later, we, we all have these portfolio evaluations. So basically in lieu of, um, comps or like, um, you know, big completion exams that PhD okay. students have to go through to, to get candidacy. Um, we have this portfolio system where there are criteria you have to meet, like presenting at X number of conferences or um, submitting a first author publication. So the school 
actually held me to different standards, um, to higher standards than even new male faculty hires. Um, so they told me that I didn't have a first author publication yet, which was not a requirement until my third year, and I was only in my second year. Um, but they had just hired a male faculty member who didn't have uh, hmm. a first author publication, which I see as bizarre. Like you can't hold a female student to a higher standard than a male faculty hire. Um, so that was an issue for me. Uh, they also told me that I hadn't presented at enough conferences, but I had presented at so many conferences that I actually had to receive overflow money from the school, which is put back into sort of the, the conference money pool by students who didn't present as much. So mm -hmm. there's no objective argument there to make. Um, and just a bunch of other things, like they were saying um, that I wasn't making good enough progress on research, which wasn't true. Um, I was the only one to get my master's degree that year. Um, you know, among my cohort with an independent research project. And I had just run four studies that year, <laughs> like okay. that, yeah. the prior semester. So, um, yeah. So basically they said that I was like doing poorly academically as pretext for my advisor's dismissal, um, which is problematic. Okay. So to try to make sense of this disparate treatment, you're excelling, uh, your advisor, unadvisedly uh, dismisses you and they they're trying to now retroactively justify his decision. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So they tried to, like <clears throat> you said, retroactively justify my advisor's decision. Um, and in the meantime, the department head was set to, um, at a faculty meeting on, I think, like May 22nd, um, bring my proposal to the faculty members and say, you know, have them vote on, or, or I don't know, I don't even know if it was like necessarily voting, but say, okay, I want to bring this person into my lab. Can I bring this person into my lab? Um, so on May 22nd, recalling that I had found not one, but two advisors who were, according to them, willing to take me on, um, I received an email from the broader psychology department head saying, uh, Dr. Volhart can't take you on into her lab. You're out of the program even though there was no academic basis for it. Are all of these, does that happen to everybody where faculty vote or decide whether or not to accept somebody? Uh, or is this a special condition for you and a faculty meeting to be brought up? This was a special condition for me. Um, when you sign on to the university, you get a contract that says you are set to work with X advisor for the duration of your PhD. You'll earn X amount in tuition remission and you'll earn X amount in a stipend. Um, so I was set to, you know, my contract said that I had two more years of full tuition remission stipend working under this professor. Okay. And for... Is there any other reason why this would happen other than uh, retaliation for uh, embarrassing uh, your original advisor? I mean, why go to so uh, to such lengths to dismiss a student? And do they not understand what a Streisand effect is, where the more you try to cover something up, the greater attention you bring to it, which is, <laughs> seems like what's happening or has happened? Yeah, I think it was really embarrassing to the program for me to point out that we had conducted an unethical analysis um, and that my advisor, like instead of helping me understand even why 
that would have been an okay analysis to do. Um, I mean, he called me intellectually underdeveloped. That's, <laughs> that's pretty awful. So instead of helping me, I think that they were really just that embarrassed and didn't want me bad mouthing the program. Um, at that point, okay. I had, I had gotten a little bit of a following on Twitter at that point. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think they were just embarrassed and it was retaliation. And so instead of doing the ethical thing of uh, talking you through it or apologizing or saying, okay, we, we made a mistake. And because we're scientists first and foremost and social creatures second, uh, we are going to put the science first and you know, correct our behavior. Instead of doing that, they doubled down and acted uh, in even more uh, unethical ways. This is not ethically ethical treatment, what they put you through. Yeah. Um, the phrase that I've heard some other people use is like circling the wagon. So yeah, they yeah. sought to basically protect their colleague and friend um, yeah. instead of protecting me as a student. I wonder if anybody's uh, this, this seems like a great uh, social psychology experiment to extract data from. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> totally. What did you do in response to this treatment? Um, in response to this treatment, I mean, I don't have a ton of power, right? Like yeah. I had my, I'm not like an expert in the field. I'm not a big name in the field. I was just starting out. I was a second year student. Um, so I took to Twitter. That was the only power I had to show, okay. um, like to talk about what I had gone through. Um, and more recently I wrote a big document called like hacktivism, um, experiences of reporting p hacking or something of that nature which i i sent to you i think yeah um, yeah i'll link that yeah. down below well you can't anymore because oh. curiously um yesterday someone pointed out like another a professor from another school pointed out that the document was reported and it was taken off of google docs okay and so this is a write-up and it's a really well done write-up that's why thank I, you connected with you. Um, it was just posted on Google Docs for anybody to read, and now it's uh, banned from there. So for some reason, somebody's uh, trying to suppress this information. Yes. Yeah. And is there any... Uh, did you just uh, at some point decide, let bygones be bygones? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be forthright on social media, but I'm not going to pursue any legal proceedings or what other recourse do you have? Is this going, and what damages are you incurring? Uh, your PhD kind of falters at the last minute or uh, you're you know, uh, kind of shoved out of the field because you know, she's the girl who's going to criticize you on social media if you work with her. What, what's the damages here that you're looking at? Yeah, I think all of the above. So I lost my two years of contracted um, tuition remission and stipend, which all in all is over a hundred thousand um, dollars. I was and do you have to pay that back, or does that put you in the red? Uh, no, that okay. luckily doesn't. It just means that I'm not, I'm not getting what I was contractually obligated to get. Um, so I'm shoved out of this field that I love. Um, there's no guarantee that I'll even be able to do research in the future because when you Google my name, the first thing that comes up is what happened at Clark. Um, yeah. And so that makes me sort of a liability, I guess. Um, but I, I mean, I don't think it should because it shows that I'm, that I want to do the ethical thing and I respect the rights of my participants. And I don't know. Yeah. That's my view of it. 
Um, but so, yeah, I've, I've been like shoved out of my field. Um, I lost other PhD opportunities and job opportunities because like I said, I had tried applying out to new PhDs um, and my advisor told me that he could write a positive letter for me and ended up not writing a very positive letter and emailing other professors to tell them that I was like, I was an idiot and that, oh, wow. <laughs> and that I was okay. like super far behind academically compared to my peers, which wasn't true. So he um, sabotaged your future. Uh, totally. It wasn't enough to drop you. Uh, he had to ruin you uh, going forward. Yes. And unfortunately it was my advisor's um, messages to new, to new potential PhD advisors alone that was the reason why I was not accepted to other PhD programs. So I was okay. accepted based on my application materials, but then at the department level, they said she's too much of a risk because of these things that her advisor said. Um, yeah. So she's not coming in. Yeah. And academia is set up in such a way, or it has grown in such a way that it is a boys club, but uh, the category of boy has just uh, shifted into the insider club. It's very oh, yeah. enmeshed in uh, everybody protecting everybody else all the way up and down. Yeah, I think that that circling the wagons yeah. trope is totally what it is. It's like you said, it's not just the boys club because women are protecting abusive women and men yeah. are protecting abusive men and, you know, all around. Um, it's just, it's corrupted. <laughs> yeah, it's it's corrupted not only uh, in, in, a, in a variety of ways. This is uh, kind of the broader, and you're not the first one that I've even spoke to on my channel that's experienced this. Eric Smith, uh, as, a, as a black man, uh, has been shoved out of his opportunities for uh, criticizing uh, certain aspects of what's called critical race theory and uh, um, yeah. and just saying I don't have an, uh, the view that I, I'm a victim. I, I, I want to base my uh, reality and my life on meritocracy. And I know you guys have a problem with it, but this is why I believe that. And he's pushed out of uh, academia because of that. Also, mm -hmm. uh, Colin Wright has been pushed out of academia because of his views yeah. on uh, the differences between males and females, which is a contentious issue. So the, 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 the problem isn't just that it's a nepotistic club where you all have to get along. The problem scales that if there is a certain idea, uh, it becomes unchallengeable certain behavior on an individual level, but also on a societal level on what ideas are acceptable to even look at or to uh, criticize are all reinforced by this system, which makes this academic uh, institution unable to be honest. And ultimately, if it strays further and further from the truth and there's no way to hold it accountable, what is it there for? Why are we supporting it? And what is it putting into our society as the so-called experts. Absolutely. And it almost doesn't even matter how much you care about social justice or um, ethical behavior or any of these things that they purport to support. That rhymed. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> I care, you know, I care about deep, deeply about these issues too that yeah. they are supporting as well. And it didn't matter. I was still kicked out when I tried to challenge something um, that mm. I thought wasn't right. And Ironically, you were brought on to represent the LGBT community, That's, and he yeah. ended up calling you a bimbo, basically. He <laughs> yeah, ended up assaulting you. Uh, it seems to me he was drawing upon sexist tropes uh, in order to uh, besmirch your character. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's just, I don't know, I 
there's nothing wrong with being a bimbo, right? But when you're an academic, yes, you're, you know, you want to be perceived as a certain way. You don't want to just be the dumb girl um, who isn't as smart as her male advisor. And that's absolutely how he made me feel. He made me feel like a dumb little girl. I don't even, I, and I think it, it seems like um, it beyond just your feelings, like he actually painted you as yeah. that in, in other people's minds. Absolutely. I know I'm, uh, I, I want to hesitate uh, being a judge of character, but academia seems to be a, a nest of vindictive, cowardly men. It just seems like, <laughs> I mean, with the whole Lindsay Shepard case, you see these men who uh, purport to be all about uh, equality and social justice completely lose their sense of respect, responsibility um, in order to hedge their, their own power. I don't want to overstep the uh, bounds of being an investigative journalist. So are are you free? What do you, what do you want um, uh, to uh, accomplish now? Or what what do you want to do with the field um, going forward? Yeah, I just want to draw attention to issues related to transparent and rigorous science. Um, I think it's totally okay to have these methodological disagreements. And um, one avenue I I saw to sort of resolving this issue was just reporting that we had found different things depending on how we categorized our participants. Um, hmm. So we could have just said we, we analyzed the data in X, Y, and Z ways. Z is um, what found the result that we had initially hypothesized. Um, and that's that, you know, we could have just written it up and the reviewers could have done what they with it um so yeah i mean that's really the only that's the crux of my soapbox there is just be honest be transparent if you have methodological disagreements talk about them no matter if your co-author is a graduate student an undergraduate a postdoc another faculty member anything um and then my other piece of my soapbox, I guess, is um, realize that the data might not always support your cause. That's why we're scientists. We're trying to figure out some form of truth. So yeah. the truth might not always be what we thought it was, and that's okay. Yeah. Activism or goal-oriented thinking and science are not graceful bedfellows. One will win um, and end up strangling the other if uh, things don't go uh, It can happen. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if uh, would it be fair to speculate that you've uh, gravitated towards business because you can take research and it has a, a feedback in reality as opposed to it just hanging out in these papers in academia where it's uh, making claims and justifying claims where whereas opposed to uh, industry like gaming, you do research and either it's right or wrong, either it works or doesn't. Is, it, is this more refreshing and, and uh, uh, taking the skills of research and, and seeing them in action? Is it closer to uh, proof for you? I think that's a good characterization. I really like how it doesn't necessarily have to result in a paper or a publication. So maybe that's why the business world is more accepting of null findings or findings that don't necessarily comport with our original hypotheses. Okay. Yeah. So the, the, the attitude towards research and development is more open-ended in uh, 
the business world because they just we're going to set aside uh, this amount of money and we're going to get results or we're not going to get results. But we need to do this just in case. Yeah, at least I naively think so. I know the industry comes with its own, <laughs> yeah, its own chops and and things like that. Do you feel uh, a twinge of disappointment because you'll be losing the glory of having a paper? Uh, you'll you'll gain a credit at the end of a video game, but you won't have that paper out there. Is there like a? I think a there's more than a. Yeah, there's more than a twinge there's of disappointment. Twinge. Um, I loved the field of social psychology. I put aside every endeavor from my sophomore year of undergrad until t- 2019. Um, I put aside music. I put aside hobbies. Hmm. And that was that was my raison d'etre. That was my reason to, to live. Um, and when I lost that, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I didn't know who I was even. Yeah. Yeah, those crises, uh, crises, uh, crises himself. What are some of the things that you, uh, having lost that, uh, what, what are, what did you find inside of yourself having, uh, been, uh, betrayed in that way? What, what are the resources that you, uh, built yourself back up from? Um, so I did go into gaming. Like I said, I really yeah. enjoyed that. Um, as you can see my guitar behind me, um, I picked, the guitar back up and I picked singing back up and I wrote a bunch of songs surrounding this situation. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. That I hoped <laughs> to put maybe release someday. I don't know. They might be too embarrassing, but um figured I should put my many decades of vocal training to use. I, I think a, a musical uh, of this story would be uh, somewhat of a hit somewhere. In right. The <laughs> <laughs> it would be a very niche hit, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm doing that with my Evergreen experience. I mean, why not? Are you really? Yeah, yeah. I got I got a collection of songs. I have to string <gasps> them together with a libretto. Oh my gosh, we should collaborate. Oh really? Okay, we totally should. Yeah. Off camera, let's talk about that. We definitely should. Yeah. Uh, what are in in social psychology? Uh, what what are the foundational texts? What are the thinkers before you that you love and that you think that the layman should pick up and and the lessons that you can derive? What are the the names or or the books that you feel everybody should read um, to learn about this field and learn about all the things that are related to this field? Um, trying to think of some of the cornerstone texts. I mentioned Tajfal. Um, so Henry Tajfal is probably the reason why I got into social psychology and started becoming interested in intergroup theories. So basically the way that different groups interact with one another. Um, How do you spell his last name? uh, T-A-J-F-E-L. F-E-L, okay. Um, So I would definitely recommend reading about social identity theory, um, which I believe is there are like three main intergroup theories now. So there's social identity theory, social dominance orientation, and um, Mm. system justification theory. And all Mm. of them kind of branch from social identity theory. So I would definitely recommend reading those. Um, Also, Allport's On Prejudice was really formative for me. A-L-P-O-R-T, Allport? A-L-L-P-O-R-T. And what was his, uh, what's his book or his theory again? On prejudice, so basically the beginnings of um, studies about stereotyping and prejudice. Okay, what um what's next for you? Are you gonna go on a speaking tour and uh, are you gonna uh, get some reports and go to games cons when games cons are coming back yeah. into style? 
Yeah, Are you gonna dress up to. as a as a Confederate uh, in your cosplay? Uh, <laughs> um, dressing up as a Confederate probably doesn't sound good out of context, but <laughs> just put some ears on. Oh yeah, actually, yeah. In in this climate, I didn't. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm dressed in red, so uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the gay Jew dressed as a confederate. (laughs) (laughs) What's next for you? Uh, What what are some projects um, that you got going on? Well, um, I have a full class load this semester, so I'll definitely be spending a lot of time with my nose in an accounting book. Yeah. Um, That'll be interesting. Um, I'm working on trying to release a single at some point. Oh, cool. Yeah, so I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping to have that out by like late spring um you should have got the sound sound cloud up and running before you did any of these uh social media shenanigans yeah bad timing i'm a bad marketer (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i'm just trying to find some some light at the end of the day to keep me going and yeah um when are you uh expected to graduate with your uh, mba spring of 2022 oh okay so you you got some time Mm-hmm. of studying yeah well great thanks for coming on we'll talk off camera uh do you have any words of wisdom uh, about the current events or, or uh like using your social psychology know-how how do you think that is the most healthy way for people to uh observe and participate in group behavior our group behavior oh, in america is, is pretty uh frothy right now what do you think is a good way to analyze and and engage yeah i think people are having really um strong visceral reactions to what's going on around them um and especially when they see group members also having those same reactions they might post things without thinking or or be really over emotional not over emotional but they might be really emotional about them um so i just think giving people grace in this time is helpful um trying to be as kind as you can on social media um, if someone posts something that you don't necessarily agree with, you don't necessarily have to go and tell them that they're an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, just try to be kind to one another. Um, I know a lot of people are not really jazzed about the unity messages, um, but as much as you can try to give hmm. grace to people. Yeah. I think grace we, is better than unity. <laughs> yeah, like I, I, I definitely uh, jive with that. Um, it's positive and it has a better feeling. And plus, uh, unity's got some problematics uh, with it too. Even though it's a good ideal to hold, uh, it it's important for us to tithe grace. Like even even if you want to rage on the internet, every tenth post, just do something kind. Uh, hopefully, more than just every tenth post, but you know just tithing goodness into the social pot uh, might have a much more profound effect than we uh, would suppose. Well, um, thank you, Abby, for uh, joining me and exposing your soul on my channel. Thank you for having me. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.